growing up in the 80s and 90s, if I learned anything about the radical movements of the 1960s, it was this. Black liberation was misogynistic and homophobic, and women's liberation was racist and transphobic. And they were not the same people, they were not the same groups, and they did not come together. And that's just not true. It's one of the many lies that I think the system has enforced upon us. And one of the many things that we can come to believe very easily when the histories of incarcerated people are kept from us, because that's where we see the truth. You are listening to PIT America's Works of Justice podcast. I am Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager of Editorial Projects for Prison and Justice Writing, which for over 50 years has amplified the voices of thousands of writers who are creating while incarcerated. Works of Justice spotlights key figures, writers, and artists who are reshaping the conversation on mass incarceration, advocacy, and justice in the United States. In this episode, I speak with Hugh Ryan about his recent book, The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book, The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison, just published by Bold Type in May, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. this year, my gosh. Although May seems like six years ago now because every month of this pandemic is like 12. <laughs> of course, that's how time works now. Um, but this was just an incredible read. As soon as I learned about it, I knew I wanted to read it. I knew I wanted to talk to you about it. So thank you so much for just immediately saying yes and for being so generous with your time. Oh, please. This is an honor. Thank you for having me on. I love Pen America. I'm a fan of your poetry. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, great. Okay, so let's just get into it. This is one of the few experiences where I read a book and get to talk to the person about it and it being about an actual place and a place in a city where I live. And so if you could, for me and for our listeners, just paint the scene about what the Women's House of Detention was, where it was, and how it got there. Sure. The Women's House of Detention was a 12-story maximum security prison located in the heart of Greenwich Village from 1929 to 1974. And I call it a prison. Technically, it was both a prison and a jail. Prisons are where we cage people who have been found guilty of a crime. Jails are where we cage people who are on trial or are material witnesses or are in other ways held uh, for a period of time in our criminal legal system. The House of D had both populations in it. But when I spoke to folks who were incarcerated there who had experiences in other kinds of detention centers, they said it was most similar to being in a maximum security prison. So I use that as the terminology because that's the effect that it had on the folks who passed through it. But it was both both facilities. It was also huge. We're talking 12 stories in Greenwich Village where most buildings are three or four stories. It was built to hold 400 people. At times it held as many as 800 people. And it wasn't just in Greenwich Village, right? Greenwich Village is a big neighborhood. If you don't know Greenwich Village well, you probably do know at least one street in it. Christopher Street, which has, you know, a global name as the center of like queer community. And the prison actually is right where Christopher Street hit 6th Avenue and 10th Street, right? This like central intersection is where the prison was located. It was the last prison in Greenwich Village. But what I think most people don't know, well, aside from any of this history, which I also did not know before <laughs> doing this research, is that prisons 
have a huge, long history in Greenwich Village. There were prisons in Greenwich Village before Greenwich Village was part of New York City. The first prison in Greenwich Village opened up shortly after the founding of America, right? In the 1790s. The phrase, send someone up the river, originally meant sending someone from New York City, then just like the tip of lower Manhattan, up the Hudson River to Greenwich Village, where they would be incarcerated at Newgate Penitentiary. So the reason the House of D, which is what most of the folks who passed through it called it, was located in Greenwich Village is actually because Greenwich Village exists today as the place that it is because of prisons and jails, which have an incredibly long history there. And this one in particular has a constitutive history. It helped make Greenwich Village the place we know it as today, particularly for queer people. The House of D was a queer landmark. I did not know some of that about uh, being sent up the river and I didn't know that it was the last prison in Greenwich Village and like that that whole history. We'll, we'll get into some of that soon. And speaking of queer landmarks, if I'm not mistaken, it's, it was really close to Stonewall. 500 feet! Yeah. It is shocking to me when I learned that. This is one of those things where like I put that on a map and I was like, wait a second. Now I see where that is. And now I see where that is. How can these two things not be connected? Right. And of course, it turns out that they were, but we'll Very get there. Connected. Yeah. Yes, we will. We will <laughs> get there. So you did say that there were some things that you didn't know going into this research. And so I'm interested in what got you to this subject. How did you learn about the House of D and what made you want to learn more about it and then write the mm. book that you gave us? All of my work really is, is trying to find something out that I don't know myself, particularly things that I think I should know and that other people should know and don't seem to know. So when I was writing my first book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, I was considering prisons as major vectors in queer life because they collected queer information, right? So many of our records come from the carceral system when it comes to queer history. Arrests are a good way to track people, right? But the records are really bad. And I wasn't yet thinking about prisons as creators of queer life and culture and history. I was thinking of them as record keepers uh, and, and oppressors sort of of queer life. So important, but not in the same way that I came to learn in this book. But in doing that research in Brooklyn, I followed two people in particular whose lives passed through this system. A woman named Mabel Hampton, who was a lesbian dancer and uh, actress and domestic worker who got her start at Coney Island in 1920 and who went on to be arrested on a sort of bullshit setup charge for vagrancy prostitution in the 1920s. And she passed through what was called the women's court. Because one of the things I learned in doing this is that uh, since the 1870s, we had an entirely separate system of courts, jails, crimes that only applied to women and transmasculine folks seen as women. So Mabel Hampton alerted me to the women's court which was right next door to the house of detention or where it would be eventually. So she brought me to start thinking about this. And then there was a trans guy whose life I followed in that book too. Uh, I never was able to find out the name he lived under when I was doing that research. I, I later found out he went by Big Cliff Trondle. And Big Cliff was arrested for wearing pants in Brooklyn in 1913. And he asked Woodrow Wilson for permission to dress and live as he wanted. This is why we know about him. And of course, it got denied and he got sent to the Bedford Reformatory, which is another of these networks of women's facilities that existed in and around New York City and later got sent to the House of Detention. So my previous work 
quite kind of led me to the door, you know, but didn't quite tell me that this was the next thing or, or even point directly at the house to be. It kind of made me aware. But I was doing a lot of stuff in the community. I've lived in New York for decades. My family's from the Bronx. So I'm always kind of going on walking tours. One of my favorite things. And if there's a queer one, I'm there. And Jay Toole, who's like a, a longtime activist and leader in New York City's queer community, leads tours of the West Village, where she talks about her experiences having been incarcerated at the House of D. And when I went on one of her tours, now probably like seven, eight years ago, maybe six, I don't know, she said, I do this because I'm in danger of being forgotten. My life and my culture and everything that happened to me, so much of it passed through the House of D. And it it felt like, you know, as a historian, there are just these moments where like the universe looks at you and is like, hello, this is your job. Your community is stepping up and saying to you, like, we're being forgotten, do something. So it was like on both sides, I had these voices kind of pushing me towards the house of detention. And I didn't know yet what form that was going to take, right? I knew now that I wanted to consider it. And once my kind of eyes were on, it suddenly started to appear everywhere. It was in Audre Lorde's memoir, Zami. It was in Joan Nessel, the co-founder of Lesbian Herstory Archives book. It was in Broadway shows. It was it felt like it was everywhere all of a sudden. And then I came across a statistic from the Williams Institute at UCLA, which is a think tank on sexuality and the law. They looked at research conducted with incarcerated folks, currently incarcerated folks. So this is research being done in prisons, in youth detention centers, in jails, asking about sexuality. And they found that 40%, percent 40% of people incarcerated in prisons for women identified as LGBTQ. And I, I was shocked. This this wasn't new research. I think the paper was from like 2012 and I was coming across it in, you know, 2017 or 2016. And I was just like, wait, how is there this crisis of incarceration that I, a, a queer historian, a queer person in the present day, do not know anything about, right? I felt so ignorant in that moment. Uh, so often my work is a feeling of ignorance that I'm trying to dig my way out of. Uh, but that was suddenly it. I was like, wait a second. Okay, now my past work has led me here. My current community is telling me, please do this. And then I have this statistic that is telling me that this is a major issue that I don't think is being discussed enough. And in that moment, I was like, all right, this is crystallized. This is my project. Wow, love that story. And you mentioned some of the people, like you mentioned Jay, going on Jay's walking tour, Mabel Hampton. And reading this book, I spent a lot of time when I started trying to follow everybody's story because there's so many people in it. And what I love about it is that these people, um, I know you're going through a lot of archives and a lot of their lives are on paper and like you're, recon you're not reconstructing, but you're constructing the um, narrative about their life intersecting with the House of D. And it was like they were living and breathing before me. It was it was almost as if I knew these people and like they were writing the book themselves. But all of these people were being filtered through you and the research. Once you decided to embark on, on this journey, what was your process and what how, how did you want to tell the story and how did you find your way to telling the story with keeping up with so many of of the people and so much of the extensive research i'm glad that 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 fullness of their lives comes through because that was the paramount most important thing to me when i sat down to do this work i had 
to find these people as real people, right? Because one of the many things the criminal legal system does is it reduces people down to their least, right? To a number, to a crime, to uh, you know, a history of incarceration. It doesn't look at them as, as human beings with thoughts and experiences with lives before, during, and after prison. You know? And I knew that I had to resist that because one, that's terrible history. Right? It is not interesting, it's not well told, and two, it's often wrong. The records that jails and prisons keep are, are bad. They're just not very well done in many, many ways. So I knew I needed to find a way to talk about this from the perspective of the people who had been incarcerated there because the building doesn't fucking matter they matter, right? They're the ones who invest it with meaning and create the meaning that it extends out into the world. So I knew what my job was. I didn't exactly know how I was gonna do it. For the later years, the 60s and into the early 70s, I knew I could find folks who were living, like Jay, who had been incarcerated there and would be willing to talk to me. There were some great folks, uh, really wonderful people who I talked to along the way, Crooksy in particular, who we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, truly just opened my eyes to so many things, Jay, obviously. But for the earlier years, for the earlier years, I wasn't sure how I was gonna do this, but that, fullness of their lives had to come through. So the first year of doing the work on this book was simply trying to find the right kinds of records. I looked at newspapers. I looked at LGBTQ periodicals from the earliest periods, you know, the 50s, the 60s. Uh, I looked at the records of LGBTQ organizations like the Daughters of Belitis and the Mattachine Society. I looked at the archives of famous queer people who passed through New York thinking, okay, somewhere these things will be mentioned. It was very little occasional mentions, particularly again in the like late 60s and early 70s in queer periodicals and feminist and anti-racist periodicals. But in the earlier part, there was just so little. So I actually had to take a step back and I had to think about how other historians do this work because I'm not a trained historian. My undergrad degrees in women's studies and then I was a social worker for a long time. And then I have an MFA in creative nonfiction. So I looked at all these other historians and, and the one who really, for me, was kind of revelatory was Sadia Hartman. I think Sadia Hartman is a, a brilliant writer and a brilliant historian. And she talks about in an article, this idea that she created uh, called critical fabulation, which is basically when the archive is missing, when it can't speak to certain things, but we know about them, we can invest in the lives of the people we have followed and learned about and try to write the things that the archive cannot capture because archives are not neutral, right? And we often think they are. And so we think, oh, if it's not in the archive, then it didn't exist. I started thinking, how can I apply that to my own work? And I thought about the lives of the people who I knew had passed through this prison. And I tried to imagine myself into them to ask this one big question, where did they interact with power? Because that's what gets you into the archives, right? You're in the archives one of two ways. Either you have power, so you're famous, you publish a book, people ask you questions, they report on you in a newspaper, you own your own home, your diaries are preserved, your descendants aren't embarrassed of you, so they publish those diaries. In all these ways, you enter the public record on your own terms. That was gonna happen for very few of the folks who I was interested in hearing from. So I had to find places where they entered the public record on someone else's terms, but fuller terms, terms that gave them humanity, that asked about their experiences, their ideas, their thoughts, what they cared about. And that's when I hit on social workers because I'd been a social worker with queer street involved youth in New York City. And I knew that the files we kept were incredibly robust. Now, they weren't perfect, they weren't neutral, right? But they still had letters from the students that we worked with, photos of them, their health records, uh, messages from their parents, drawings they had done, sometimes their diaries if they left them behind and never came and got them. I knew that these kinds of records 
would give me something closer to the real lives of these women and trans men as they lived them and expressed themselves. And so casting about for that, I found a collection at the New York Public Library of 150 boxes of case records taken by an organization called the Women's Prison Association, which is the first organization working with formerly incarcerated women in America, founded in New York in the 1840s, uh, who opened the first halfway home in America for formerly incarcerated women called the Hopper Home. And these files had been in the New York Public Library since the 1980s, but no one had ever looked at them. And they hadn't looked at them for a specific reason. When they were donated, the organization, the WPA, did something really smart, right? They said some of these women might still be alive. So if there is a file less than 70 years old, you need to ask us for permission to ask to access it. They then gave the them in boxes that were alphabetical, not chronological. So the library assumed there was at least one file less than 70 years old in every box and locked them all away. And so no one reached out to ask. And so there was also no finding aids. There was no idea of what was in these boxes. And as soon as I asked the WPA, they said, yeah, absolutely, go for it. We're happy to have you look. We don't know what's in these boxes either, but we don't think you're gonna find queer people there. We would love if you did, but we just don't think we were asking those kinds of questions in the 30s and 40s, you know? And I said, you might be right, but I was pretty sure they were wrong because in the 30s and 40s particularly, and going back before that, part of the reason we have this whole women's justice system in America in the late 19th and early 20th century is that reformers and, and the justice system as a whole really understood that if a poor woman didn't get married and didn't end up as a maid, she had no other job. She had no other life. She was going to end up a ward of the state. So the system targeted women who were improperly feminine because only feminine women can be wives or maids, right? So I knew that this system was looking for women who are masculine of center and that they were gonna end up in these social work records because they were masculine of center, right? I was certain that it would be there. I didn't know how on the surface it would be. Within seconds, not seconds, okay. Within hours of opening up the first box of records, I found a 400 page file that followed a woman from her arrest as a wayward minor and runaway in 1934 up through her you know, love affair with a woman arrested for murder in the House of D, their attempt to escape, uh, their crazy two years of keeping in touch afterwards. And I, I knew, I knew, I was reading her letters about how she was struggling with homosexuality. I was reading about how she learned about it for the first time. I was seeing photos where she finally had the money to show the world how she wanted to look, right? And I knew that these files were the heart of my book. That's amazing. First of all, that they just gave you access to all of these files. But when you said that they told you that you did, they didn't think you would find anything about queer people in those notes and my jaw just dropped because there's so much that you pull out. Even as I'm reading it, I'm like, why are they so, not obsessed with like documenting queer things, but like it was, I but was they thinking, were. If, if they're documenting such specific things about people's queerness um, and, and you go through in the book, like why they were doing that. And I think it's, it was so spot on to like you said, go to the social work documents. And I was actually, surprised myself that social workers were so present in the prison and with these people's lives while they were there and after like so many times you were saying that people were coming back updating them on their life or they were trying to get in touch with the social workers the psychologists that's amazing that you had access to, to all of these files and these are unprocessed files and the wpa you said were very cautious about maybe some of them are still alive and so what were some of the decisions 
you had to make around, I guess, the ethical decisions about <laughs> writing about people's lives. And you said these are like very intimate letters, even just the way you're talking about that person who's like writing the letters and like wanting their story to be known and seen. I mean, that's the queer move, right? That's, that's always the thing when you're talking about queer lives. So what were some of the decisions you had to make ethically to build the <sighs> that you do? There were a lot of them. First off, I feel strongly that when you are dead, we do not owe you your closet. Whatever it was that kept you there, whether it was by choice or by force, whether it was fear or desire, all of that has died with you. And that the most honest and best thing that I can do as a historian is to bring out your story in its fullness, its complications, it's, it's good, it's bad. So I, I dispense with that as an ethical concern. For the people I knew who were dead, who did not seem to have descendants, who were directly connected to the histories, right? They weren't the children who were, uh, you know, abandoned when someone was arrested and forced into jail for years and years and years. Uh, in those cases, I felt that I had the free reign to talk about their experiences of sexuality and gender without having to worry too much about those particular ethical, ethical implications. Now, for folks who might have still been alive, totally different story. I largely shied away from those stories unless unless I had no other option. So I tried to find in the 60s and 70s, I tried to speak to living people as much as possible. Uh, for those who I felt that they were almost certainly dead, so I felt okay covering their stories, but could not prove that they were definitely dead, I used pseudonyms throughout the book. So there are people who are identified just by pseudonyms. I also, for those folks, even though you are dead, uh, you still have a right to a fullness, to a humanity, right? And I think that oftentimes, formerly incarcerated and incarcerated folks do not get treated with respect, do not get addressed with respect. So I only use the first name of people who had not chosen to make their stories public, right? Just, uh, stories I just found through the social work files. Using someone's first name, however, can really be a sign of disrespect sometimes. So in the beginning of the book, I actually address this with a language note to sort of explain some people are addressed by their first name. It's because I do not want their last name to be out there. It is an attempt at respect. Folks whose stories largely they got the chance to tell or who were covered in the newspapers and in other ways kind of entered the public record, I use their last name the same way I would if I was writing a newspaper article about a famous person or reviewing a book, because that's another way we show respect. In every instance, I tried to ask myself, what is the most respectful way I can handle this person's story? Uh, and that I think is an ongoing process. And I, I, I can never say that I made all the right decisions, but I think that you have to ask yourself that at, at every level. So for me, it's like, one, I have to tell their story in its fullness. Two, I have to tell it in a way that is respectful to them. Three, I have to ask myself in each word choice, am I being respectful in this moment? Uh, photos, this is another area that came down. Everyone wanted to see photos. Every time I do a talk, people want to see photos. And I say, no, I'm not going to show you these photos. I'll show you a couple, one or two, to give you a sense. But they're trauma porn, right? They are non-consensual. I do not know the names of the people in them. I do not know the circumstances under which they were taken. They look excruciating. They document people on some of the worst days of their lives. And there is no need for someone to see more than a single photo, right? One of the things that almost every single person who passed through this prison says in their records, in their files, or in our interviews is that inside, very little ever changes, right? The circumstance remains the same. We don't need to look at 100 photos 
to understand what was happening inside that prison. So that's another level on which I made one of these kind of bigger ethical decisions. And then I think the sort of biggest or, or final ethical decision maybe was when I got to the end of the book, I realized that there were many ways you could tell this story. And for me, the frame, the thing that I walked out feeling mattered the most was abolition, which could come from their stories, but not many folks incarcerated in the House of D talked about abolition directly. Though Angela Davis, of course, famously talks about abolition and it really led me to abolition reading her works. And she was incarcerated in the House of Detention in the 1970s. But you could walk away from this history and tell a version of it that did not directly address abolition. But in doing this research, the thing that I saw over and over again is that abolitionists are the only ones who seem to have a sense of what the system is actually doing. And therefore, maybe you're the only ones who have an idea of how to fucking fix it. And so it felt necessary to me that the framing for this book be abolition, that that be the introduction, this part where I speak forward from an I space and connecting abolition with uh, queer rights, because I think the two movements go hand in hand. So that, I think, was one of my biggest ethical decisions at the very end. There were so many ethical decisions, I feel like I could take up this whole podcast talking about them. <laughs> Of course. So speaking of ethical choices, right off the bat, I mean, you already talked about Angela Davis, which we'll, we will definitely get into later. Um, my mouth was on the floor when I got to that part of the book. But I noticed almost immediately your attention to race. And it's, I mean, we know you and I, it's it's impossible to to craft uh, any type of history about prison or incarceration or even justice in the United States without bringing race into the center of it. And in reading the descriptions of the many people you write about, you tell us what their race is. And so you tell us this was a black person, this was a white person. And then at one point you're like, they're looking for the perfect white candidate for this protest. So you you even talk about how race was used as a tool and how a lot of the white people in the book were able to have certain outcomes that the people of color did not. How did you make that decision and, and how did you go about doing that throughout the book? I mean, I think race is a fundamental analytic for my work in general, no matter what it is that I'm looking at. Um, definitely though, as you pointed out with, with our criminal legal system, prisons and policing, you cannot talk honestly or openly about them without talking about race. But I think for me, I approach race in my work through two ways. When I'm doing a history like this, um, I think about the end reader, right? Who my experience of reading history is often, I find myself asking, where would I be in this history, right? So my readership needs to be able to have people where they locate themselves. We're not those people in the past, right? I am not a queer person from a hundred years ago, even if they are white, even if they live in the same place as me, it, it, we're living in different worlds, but it helps me to see through the world through those eyes. So all of my histories, when I wrote When Brooklyn Was Queer, even in the earliest part of that history, when Brooklyn is like one of the whitest and most racist places you can imagine, it was important for me to locate the stories of queer people of color because that is essential to my reader, right? I need to be doing that, but also, like I said, I think race is a central analytic. So there's the one part of it that is like, I need to find the stories of particular people of color, even in spaces where there are very few of those stories, because that's gonna matter and that's gonna tell us something. But also 
if it's a space without a lot of people of color, then race is an operative analytic that is moving through this space and we cannot understand it at all. So that's the other side of it is like race always needs to be a lens to understand what I'm looking at. If I'm looking at something that is all white, then race is operating in a major way. It's just a way that we're used to thinking of as invisible. So race for me is about finding specific people in histories to represent the categories we care about today, which is also how I think about sexuality and gender, right? The categories of today matter in the past, not because I'm gonna make them live up to these categories, but because people in today need to read my work and understand how my work is an origin to where they are, we are today. But also I need to look at how it's operating in that moment. I need to look at how race or gender or sexuality, not on our terms, not on our modern words, but how it is operating and constructing the world that my narrators live in, pass through and co-create. So it kind of operates on both levels simultaneously at all times, or at least I try to keep it operating on both levels simultaneously at all times. Yeah, that's that's really important. And I think that it's easy for people who write about queer life and queer culture to call all of it queer culture without going into the racial differences. And to me, that's always the gauge for how thorough someone is. If, if they're talking about queerness just as a monolith or if they're talking about queerness and the different experiences that queer people have. And it is it's all throughout this book. You even go into how neighborhoods change. Like you go through how the village changes in their relationship to prisons. You talk about how black neighborhoods are disrupted by incarceration, by gentrification. Can you talk a bit about the, I mean, I've been in New York for four years. The PIN America office is located in Soho. I walk to the village often. I was there yesterday, just walking through. And every place mm -hmm. is historical, but every time I'm there, I'm feeling something. And it could be because I was reading this book and I, I knew <laughs> what that something was. But something you say at the beginning is that prisons and jails were not always on an island or outside of communities. How the House of D was this place where people saw the prison as part of the neighborhood where they can be close to people who were incarcerated, their loved ones, their friends. I forgot which person would be like walking their dogs and yelling up Crixie. the windows. Yes. And so can you talk about that history of prisons in the village? And you did mention that this yeah. was the last prison and a very important one, but how the village's relationship to prisons changed over time. Absolutely. When that first prison gets constructed, Newgate, in the 1790s, the folks who live in what is literally a village of Greenwich look on it pretty favorably because it's a sign that the city is growing towards them, right? Here's an institution. Here's something that's going to mean that our town has a permanency and a link to New York City, a, a very unfortunate one and reminiscent in certain ways of the ways in which our uh, move under mass incarceration to like shove prisons, like you said, onto islands and to far away from everything has turned certain towns in like upstate New York or like other rural places into single town industries around prisons, right? There's something of that that's happening in this moment. There's an excitement about uh, having a prison there and what it will mean for the town. Then the city grows up, it encapsulates Greenwich Village and it continues, right? Greenwich Village continues to be important because of prisons. When New York City forms the first police department in the country, they put one of the headquarters in Greenwich Village because that's where the prisons have been, right? The courthouse, which is now the Jefferson Market Library, beautiful, beautiful building, is there because 
prisons were there and because jails were there and because the police were there, it, it compounds upon itself, right? There is no way to talk about the history of Greenwich Village without talking about the history of incarceration, except that one of the things mass incarceration has done has taught us that prisons do not matter. We do not look at prisons. We do not talk about prisons. They are a separate sphere. We do not talk about people who are formerly incarcerated and we don't view them as uh, co-creators in our world. They are an infliction upon us. And certainly if you look at any of the very tiny mentions of these prisons that exist today in Greenwich Village, that's how they're seen as an infliction on the space. And the folks who pass through them are seen as problems to be solved, not citizens to be helped, right? That is what happens with prisons over and over again. Even in spaces they create, like Greenwich Village, they are seen as not appropriate. And I think the clearest view on this is in the 1920s, as the village is starting sort of to inch up to what we will call gentrification, but that word is not there yet, right? But there are two different villages. And there's a, a woman who is a sociologist at Columbia, Carolyn Ware, and she spent an entire decade studying Greenwich Village. Uh, and it's a fascinating book that she ends up writing. But one of the things she highlights is that there are two groups of people in the village. There are working class folks, many of whom are immigrants or the children of immigrants uh, who largely see the prisons that are there as not the worst thing on earth. They see most people as having committed some kind of crime at some point in their life. And whether or not you are incarcerated is more of a quirk of fate than a judgment on you as a person. And having the prison there meant, like you said, they could interact with people. They could have lives. They could visit their friends when they're in detention. They could make sure they had food in the commissary, all of these things. And then there are the folks who we would today call gentrifiers, who are up and coming young professionals who are buying spaces in the village because it is beautiful and now centrally located, right? It's no longer a village outside New York. Now it is the center. It's a bohemian heart of the city, right? And they don't see the prison the same way. They see prisons and criminality as something that happens to other people, people who largely deserve it. Or maybe they don't deserve it, but they still aren't my people and they shouldn't be part of my world, right? They're not connected in their eyes, at least, to these people. And their only experience is on the streets because this is what happens, right? When the House of D is built, this 12-story building in the middle of this very low-lying area, it becomes central to the neighborhood. There's also a women's court. So for decades, from all five boroughs, any arrested woman or transmasculine person was brought to the House of D. So we are filling the village with queer people people who were seen as masculine of center. In the most homophobic period in American history in the 1950s and early 60s, when there are bar raids shutting down lesbian bars, when you can be arrested in your home, when you can be beaten on the streets, Greenwich Village remains a queer center because the police are the ones bringing queer people there, right? There's a reason we have Greenwich Village as a lesbian neighborhood when even other early queer neighborhoods in New York, places like uh, Coney Island or Brooklyn Heights, they didn't have a lot of businesses for lesbians in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s. Greenwich Village does. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is the prison. And the prison is part of what keeps the whole neighborhood queer. And everyone writes about this, right? Every book, every movie, everything you talk about talks about the centrality of the prison and the people calling up to each other from it and exchanging things through its windows and the street life that it created and the way that it made the village. This is a thing that's still true today in almost every neighborhood in the world. You have the people who own the land, right? And maybe some of them make it really queer. They open a gay bar or a gay store, they put up a rainbow flag. But the folks who create the street level culture are largely the ones who come to that area who do not live there, who do not own there, and who do not have 
public space elsewhere. It's youth. It's folks who are low income or formerly incarcerated. It's tourists. It's people who are coming for the queer vibe. They're the ones who create the street life. The prison and other kind of under-policed yet also liminal spaces like the West Side Highway, the Christopher Street Piers, these spaces provided the possibility for queer people of all kinds to meet and gather in the village and they gave the village its tenor. And then once gentrification really takes hold after the 1960s, the kind of powers that be set around destroying every one of those spots. So the House of D goes first, but then the Christopher Street Piers are eventually shut down, policed and recreated as a park for everyone. The West Side Highway is torn out. Sylvia Rivera is living under the West Side Highway, homeless at the moment when it's torn down. We destroy all of these spaces that made Greenwich Village the queer mecca that it was, and then reconstitute them as safe spaces. But safe for whom, right? Not for the people who were using them before. And so I really believe that this prison and other buildings like it and spaces like it created Greenwich Village as we know it today. And we've largely erased that history. I also have no idea what question I started answering there, to be honest. And so if I did not answer the question and you want to redirect me, please do. No, you did. I, I asked you about um, the changing history of the village in relationship to prisons. And you amplified that by also talking about it as a queer space which leads me to the next area that I want to go into is that what I, I love about this book is that we get, in addition to the care that you put into painting these people's lives and giving us this history, is you are also doing great work to show how gay liberation, Black liberation, abolition, all of these things are happening at one time and they are working in tandem with each other. And why I asked you about race in the beginning is because I noticed that you were doing that work. And then once I got to the end, I saw why. So the end of the book, we're the, the last chapter is called Gay Lib and Black Power. These people who I not know personally, but I know about their lives. I did not know about their lives in relationship to this prison and to this area, to Stonewall, you know, all these intersections. And so instead of asking and, and revealing the moment when my jaw dropped. I'm just gonna ask you to just read a bit of, from that chapter, um, yeah. from chapter 11. I will tell you my jaw also dropped in learning <laughs> this myself. So I'm right there with you. I'm gonna read just the, the very beginning of that chapter, chapter yeah. 11. And the, the subtitle is Afini Shakur, Radical Gay Liberationist. Afini Shakur is today remembered for many things, including her leadership in the Black Panthers, her brilliant legal mind, the incredible life and work of her son, rapper and actor Tupac Shakur, and her autobiography, Evolution of a Revolutionary, which she co-wrote with actor Jasmine Guy. Forgotten, though, is her history as a gay liberation radical, her presence at the Stonewall riots, and her own bisexuality. But all of these parts of her history connect in one spot, the Women's House of Detention at 10 Greenwich Avenue. In fact, a close look at Shakur's time in the House of D shows the powerful ways in which Black liberation influenced gay liberation and vice versa. I was like, shut up. It was like I was having a conversation with this book. I did not know this about Afini Shakur at all. Me and so, either. I mean, this is, this is the great work, you know? And not just because she's Afini Shakur, Black Panther, Tupac's mom, but the actual work 
that she did as an activist during that time. And so you take us to this point, what, what years are we in? This is the end of the, the 60s, 1969, uh, 1970. Okay, so we're in, in this part of the book, you are talking about Afini Shakur, Joan Bird, and Angela Davis. And, and so we said we would come back to Angela Davis and, and here we are. This part of the book is so rich. I got to the end of the chapter and I was like, surely there's something else. And it was the, the end of the book, but mine just blown at how much you just read Black liberation and gay liberation lined up, not just ideologically, but also physically. Stonewall yeah. is, you said, so close to this prison. And so- It's and the then, same yeah, places, so, the same bodies, the same people, yeah. like they're just, there are so many connections. And so I'm just gonna ask you to talk about how these people were at the House of D at the time that Stonewall was happening yeah. and how you made that discovery and, and what you did with it. Let me tell you, I shrieked when I figured this out. When, like when I put it all together, I was like, oh! uh, but I had known that there was a major uh, case against the Black Panthers called the Panther 21 in early 1969. Major attempt by the New York Police Department to destroy the Black Panther Party by arresting all of its leaders simultaneously on trumped up charges that they were planning to blow up all of these places around New York City, including like Bloomingdale's and the Brooklyn Botanical Garden and some police stations. And, and they arrest them all the night before it's supposed to happen. And they never find any weapons, any uh, explosives, any, it's all, it's all made up, right? Afini Shakur and Joan Bird are the two women who are arrested as part of this. And they become part of this really huge, famous case. And Afini Shakur is actually the one who defends herself. And it's her defense, her time interviewing the government informers uh, who told on the Panthers on the stand that's largely credited for getting the Panther 21 off, right? She is a hero in this story. And so I knew that I was going to be telling that, right? I knew that makes sense. This is what I need to do. And one day I was sitting down and I was like, okay, let me map out the actual timeline, all of this, because they're both arrested at the same time, uh, Bird and Shakur, but they're incarcerated for different periods of time. Uh, Fini Shakur is an incredible speaker. And so they raise the money to get her out first so that she can go around and raise more money for the defense and talk about it. And I'm putting this down on a timeline. And I suddenly realize that they are both there during the Stonewall riots. And I, I knew the prison had a place in Stonewall because I had been looking at the records of queer women who were involved. So Rita Mae Brown talks about how in like in the 1980s, she's writing about how when Stonewall was happening, she looked up at the prison and she saw the women inside chanting gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. And I, I listened to an oral history with a woman named Arcus Flynn, who was a member of the Daughters of Belitis. And she says, on the first night of Stonewall, she was driving home at night from her job as a nurse through the West Village. And she noticed these things in the sky, these, these points of light that were drifting down. And she had no idea what was going on. So she pulled over and she realized they were fires that they were flying out of the house of detention. The women on the inside were rioting and setting fire to their belongings and throwing them out the windows while chanting gay rights, gay rights, gay rights, right? The house of D was part of the Stonewall riot or, or maybe there were two riots, however you wanna think about it, but they were the same thing and they were connected and we only ever hear one part of the story. So on the one hand, I knew the house of D had a place in Stonewall. And then suddenly I knew that Afini Shakur and Joan Bird had been there. And so I started digging into their stories because I, I didn't know the names of any other specific people who'd been in the House of D. 
And very quickly, as soon as I started to dig into Afini Shakur's story, I started to see so many connections, so many places where she stepped forward as a beacon for gay liberation. In the late 60s, and again in the early 70s, the Black Panthers hold a Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention to write a new American constitution. And they invite radical groups from all around the country. And they invite gay liberation, and they invite the radical lesbians. And they have separate meetings for gay men and queer women. And Afini Shakur goes to the gay men's workshop and she helps them formulate their demands and think about their experiences as an oppressed people. And I found a write-up from this meeting done by the queer POC group out of Chicago that was under the umbrella of the Gay Liberation Front. And they say in that report that afterwards they have thanked Afini Shakur for helping them. And she said, no, 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 no. I want to thank you for helping me see the connections between these things. When I was in the house of detention, I saw the Gay Liberation Front banners from my window in the protest. And I began thinking about the connections between our struggles. What she didn't say to them in that moment was that while also in the house of D, she met her girlfriend, Carol Crooks, who was an incredibly important person in her life. And she herself became super involved in gay liberation, in the queer scene, uh, in part through Carol Crooksy, uh, but also many other ways. I talked to another leader in the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, uh, Denise Oliver Velez, and she told me, oh yeah, we would go to lesbian bars together. We would go out dancing. We would do all of this stuff together. Uh, Crooksy, Unfortunately, she passed uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, but before she died, I was able to talk to her um, about these experiences and what it was like and how Afini Shakur was pushing her to raise money for gay liberation, was pushing to connect these movements. Uh, when Huey P. Newton got out of jail, and he did a big press conference in New York City at Jane Fonda's penthouse apartment. And there's footage of it. You can find it on YouTube. And in the background, I, I see there's Afini Shakur walking with a bunch of queer people. And I talked to one of the guys and he said, yeah, uh, 1969, I'm living in a gay liberation front commune in New York City. One day the phone rings and I pick it up and it's Afini Shakur. And she's like, tomorrow, Huey P. Newton is in town. He wants to sit down and talk about gay liberation and women's liberation and connections with black liberation and how we knit these movements together. We need some of your leaders to come uh, and they were like, what? So they show up, they had no idea it was gonna be Jane Fonda's apartment. They had no idea what they were getting into, but she, orchestrates this meeting. We, we remember Huey P. Newton's letter about gay liberation and women's liberation and its connections with black liberation. But Afini Shakur's part in this story, which is incredibly important, has largely been left out and forgotten, right? And so when I started to see all of these things come together, when I realized that Afini Shakur was part of Stonewall, right? How much closer together could these movements be knit? She's a leader in both of them and she's not the only one. One of the things that listening to her and Carol Crooks and Angela Davis and Erica Huggins and all of these leaders of that time, one of the things they said over and over again is that prisons for women function differently around sexuality than prisons for men. In women's prisons, because again, they are made from the very beginning to focus on women who are improperly feminine, masculine of center. There are so many queer people, as Jay Tool put it to me, they couldn't separate us. They never even tried, right? In the 60s, there are estimates by incarcerated folks and folks working with them that about 75% of the people in the House of D are queer, 75%. There's no separating them out. So for women, prison became a place to discuss sexuality in ways and gender that they could never on the outside and places where their movements were knit together because they were put together and they saw that they were being oppressed by the same people, the same systems and in the same ways. Men's facilities were different. Men's facilities have, since at least as far back as the 19 teens and 20s, had separate wings uh, 
in Rikers, it was called the Ferry Wing, and now I think it's called the Trans Inclusive Housing Unit, but they were specifically for folks who were really gender variant. Uh, they may have identified as homosexual men, they may have identified as trans women, they might not have used any of that language, or folks who are arrested for specifically gay crimes. So when you talk to men in the Black Panthers, they talk about being in prison and saying, we saw gay men as being a very small group that was feminine, weak, and was protected by the system, right? They got their own housing unit and they were kept separate from the rest of us. Or they were asshole bandits. They were rapists who would try to attack you in your sleep. And the only way to defend yourself and show that you weren't gay was to kill them. And that the administration turned a blind eye and pushed them to do this. The guards told them that was the way to defend their manliness. So women in prison have a chance to think about and enact sexuality and gender identity in ways that are totally different from the outside world. Men are told to reinforce all the exact same homophobia that they get on the outside. And that, of course, has huge repercussions for the lives of people in prison and the lives of people outside of prison. But I think what I just did not expect was the ways that Black liberation, gay liberation, women's liberation, the Latinx liberation, they all cross and come together at the House of D. And after that point, after Angela Davis is there, and after Afini Shakur is there and the Stonewall riots, they're all meeting together and protesting this prison again and again and again. At the end of 1969, between Christmas and New Year's, all these groups came together and set up a permanent encampment outside the prison to protest it, their own version of Zuccotti Park during Occupy Wall Street, right? These movements were one and the same at certain moments, and they were separate at other moments, but connected, and some people walked between them. And that's something that I will say growing up in the 80s and 90s, if I learned anything about the radical movements of the 1960s, it was this. Black liberation was misogynistic and homophobic and women's liberation was racist and transphobic. And they were not the same people, they were not the same groups and they did not come together. And that's just not true. It's one of the many lies that I think the system has enforced upon us. And one of the many things that we can come to believe very easily when the histories of incarcerated people are kept from us because that's where we see the truth. Wow. Wow. I think I want to maybe give you space, or maybe this is something I'm interested in. Okay, it's another question. <laughs> um, what do you want people thinking about abolition now? Thinking about Rikers in New York City, it's on board to close by 2026. Thinking about the movements that are happening now, what do you want people to walk away from after reading your book about this history of a women's prison in the village while we are also still in the fight for abolition? I mean, I think the biggest thing that I walked away from, and, and my hope for other readers, I guess, is that it showed me how reform is almost impossible. Now, specific reforms, we can improve specific things. We could improve healthcare in prisons and jails, right? And we can improve the food and we can improve vocational services. Um, but we, we largely don't, right? Most reforms are more money, more space, and then they're abandoned after people stop paying attention. Reform isn't always a barrier to change, but it can be. And it frequently is in the prison system. And when I looked historically, what I saw over and over again is that Everyone involved in the system understands that it doesn't work, not work in the way that we think it does. It has nothing to do really with justice or rehabilitation. And throughout decades, 
the folks administrating the prison, the folks who were incarcerated in it, the social workers connected to it, the administration of the city government, everyone recognized the failures and, and how base they were, how little the system had to do with justice or rehabilitation, and how much it had to do with reinscribing poverty and anti-Blackness and anti-queerness. Everybody knows it, right? And we still can't change it. And that, that was what really abolition drove home for me, right? Because there's the disconnect. If everybody knows that these things have been wrong and they continue to be wrong in the same ways and we make attempts to fix it that don't do anything, then the system is doing something we don't understand. And we aren't able to change it because our changes are tinkering around with something that is decorative and not essential to the nature of the system. And so once I began to see that, and I began to look at abolition and read abolitionists and learn from folks, uh, some of the folks that have been on this very podcast, a director Purnell, you know, like these people who, who know so much more than I do, because I'm not an organizer, you know, and I, I've come to this very late, um, but you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Mariam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie, these folks, taught me how to think about the system and how to understand what it was actually doing. Because the truth is, if it's not about crime, right? It's not about justice. It's not about rehabilitation. It's not the things we are taught when we are young. Then what is it doing? And the truth is, it's mostly a stopgap, a pressure valve. It's not a broken system. It is a monstrously efficient system that is operating as a drain for all the systems that actually are broken, right? It's what we do because we do not have good healthcare in this country. It's what we do because we don't have great education in this country. It's what we do because we do not have a robust welfare or housing system in this country. Prisons are necessary to our world as it is constructed today because they are where we put everything else we refuse to care for. Every person, every community, everything we want to turn a blind eye to has to go into prison or they would clog up all of these other systems, right? And they would expose how broken those systems actually are. So when we tinker with ideas of like justice or rehabilitation at the edges of the existing system, it is incapable of doing something because the rest of the world demands that the system be what it is. And that's why abolition is necessary, right? Because we can't fix this. We have to overturn it. Now, along the way, we can make meaningful changes to the lives of people who are unfortunately caught up in this system, right? And that is necessary. I start the book off with a quote from Huey P. Newton where he talks about reforms being all right, reforms being good, so long as they're targeted and we understand they are not strengthening the system. Any reform that simply gives more money or creates more prisons in the end will be used to incarcerate more people. We have to be very targeted in reform and the reform always has to be with an eye towards the eventual abolition and decarceration of the system as a whole because we cannot fix it in these minor steps. So that's, I think, my big takeaway and what I hope maybe people get out of reading it. Thank you so much for talking with me today, um, answering all my many questions about this book. I can go on and on and on about so many things that you have here. And I'm excited to continue to, I mean, I have to go back and read it again now after this mm -hmm. conversation. Um, just well, thank you. This was really wonderful getting to talk about this. And I mean, I, I respect your work. I respect Pen America's work so much. And um, yeah, it just means a lot getting a chance to chat about it. So thank you. Thank you. This episode of Works of Justice was produced by Malcolm Tariq. Music used throughout this episode was created by B.L. Sherrell and Fury Young of Die Jim Crow Records, the nation's first nonprofit record label for formerly and currently incarcerated artists. Members of PEN America's Prison and Justice writing team include 
Jess Avalafia, Program Assistant. Valentina Flores, Prison and Justice Writing, Postgrad Fellow. Nicole Shawan Jr., Deputy Director, Prison and Justice Writing. Moira Marquis, Senior Manager, Free Write Project. Kate Meissner, Director of Prison and Justice Writing. Robert Pollock, Prison Writing Program Manager. Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager, Editorial Projects. You can subscribe to and hear previous episodes of Works of Justice on any podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. To learn more about PEN America's prison and justice writing, please visit pen.org slash works of justice. That's P-E-N dot org slash works of justice.